Explore Milwaukee's past and its future, one building at a time. This is Urban Spelunking with On Milwaukee's Bobby Tanzillo and me, Nate Immig, from 88.9. Well, Bobby, this is a really exciting time for the Milwaukee Public Museum. We've been all over this story of the future museum as they have been kind of rolling out these announcements about these future galleries. We had the first look earlier this month and the second wave of renderings came through last week. And this week we're joined by museum officials for a deep dive on what this really means. And uh, they go through, of course, the inspiration, but also, you know, parts of the story that aren't being talked about. Yeah, it was. it's really interesting to see these reveals because I personally think that they will help people kind of cope. <laughs> people who are sort of worried that, you know, that they're not going to recognize this new museum, that they won't see any of the old museum in it. I feel like these have really kind of laid that to rest. Of course, it will be different. It will look different and there will be new things about it. But these renderings seem to show lots of familiar stuff. One of the big things I saw in this latest batch was the beloved Honey Bear exhibit. Those are still going to be there in the new museum, as well as that beaver scene, which is also really well loved. You, you know that you know what I'm talking about, the one where you can see the beaver working underneath and you can peek under the water. Yep. Those elements will be translated and updated, of course. And they've been pretty clear about, you know, the intention of bringing some of those recognizable elements over but also trying to carve out some new territory as well. This is the future museum and there's going to be a lot of things from their permanent collection that'll be on view you know, for the first time in a lot of cases. So we're seeing old and new in these new renderings. Yeah. And I think what's exciting is it really gives the museum a chance to kind of update some things that hadn't been updated and sort of really needed updating. You know, like the bison hunt has, you know, for a long time, Native Americans and scholars have agreed that that was not a very realistic depiction of that scene. So it gives them a chance to kind of keep the familiar objects that are there, but use them to kind of update the story and tell, you know, a more accurate story. So we talked to a number of officials from Milwaukee Public Museum and from Think Design, who is leading the exhibit design. And they stepped through this next wave of announcements. They're calling it the Wisconsin Journey Gallery, which will include all of these touchstones from across the state, an area called Driftless, an area called Prairie, and then I'm really looking forward to seeing how they translate this. Apostle Islands and North Woods. I know a lot of us travel up to the North Woods for vacation and to see that like captured in a scientific sort of setting at a museum, that'll be really, really interesting. And I think recognizable for a lot of people. Yeah, and there's lots of, as we can see from the renderings, there's lots of sort of, you know how the museum now in, the, uh, in certain sections have lots of sort of natural elements recreated like the trees in the rainforest exhibit and that sort of thing. I think the new museum is gonna have a lot of that stuff as well. And I think that's gonna make people happy because that's a lot of what people love about the current museum is that sort of immersive experience. We're gonna go kind of beyond the renderings, beyond the press release and go right to the source. We're gonna take a deep dive and hear more about this next wave of exhibits for the Milwaukee Public Museum's Future Museum. That's in our extended conversation next. Do you want to know the secret behind the programming you love? It's all funded by the Honor System. As a public radio station, we're based on a very simple model. We try to do something meaningful, connecting with you through music and stories. And then we count on those who appreciate what we do to show their support. Are you one of them? Show your support by visiting RadioMilwaukee.org and joining today.
All right, Bobby, we're back on Urban Spelunking. We're going to get right into this interview, and I encourage you to stick around to the very end. We asked museum officials a pretty direct question. What is the biggest component of this story that that nobody's talking about or that they're not being asked about? But let's get into the exhibits first. All right. Hi, everybody. Thanks for taking the time to do this. I guess what we really kind of want to get to is the nut of how you guys approach this specific gallery and encompassing all of these many I feel like compared to the last one, this one has a lot sort of subject matter to cover, lots of different sites and things. So how did you kind of approach getting all of that in there? I think really that the basis of this whole gallery, what was really foundational was the Wisconsin Wonders tour that we took in in 2021. Uh, It was a 10 day tour across the entire state. We visited over 20 sites in 10 days and it was incredibly foundational to the way that we understood the state, also to bonding us as a team. This is incredibly collaborative work. We work really hard with one another. It's such a talented team of people with very, very different disciplines and backgrounds. And so we were bonding as a team in this gorgeous state of Wisconsin as we were covering you know, a diversity of landscapes, we we're meeting a diversity of people. So I, I would say the foundation really, really started there. And just to add to that, one of the most exciting aspects of the trip was we really got to see a variety of perspectives on different parts of the land. And you really, we spoke with people that really had this intimacy with the land to help us sort of tease out these things that the average person, you know, may not think about. Mm -hmm. So being able to take those moments of intimacy and bring them into the exhibit is something we're super excited to do. Can you talk a little bit about how, just going from that, how you were able to sort of update what the stories the museum tells about Wisconsin culture with what you learned on this trip? I mean, this is sort of an exciting opportunity to take exhibits that haven't, in some cases, probably changed in quite a while and incorporate sort of new research and, and new elements and new attitudes. Yeah. So I mean, the current museum is is fantastic, but it doesn't have the same sort of focus on Wisconsin that we're trying to achieve, where this museum can really be the Natural History Museum of Wisconsin. There's certainly exhibits throughout that focus on Wisconsin biomes and ecologies, but we really wanted to pull together a gallery that had a focus on the state. And in terms of updating content, this exhibit really one of the things we're trying to put to the forefront are the voices of the people who live on the land now and showing how those traditions go back generations. Sometimes that's a few generations. Sometimes it's several dozen generations. So those perspectives of, you know, whether it's from an indigenous canoe maker who's been learning about their trade for generations from, you know, their ancestors, whether it's a farmer, maybe it's, you know, we met with, a Taiwanese farmer who was second generation, who was very involved in migrant workers. So it's the voices of those individuals and bringing those to the forefront and making sure that we're looking at Wisconsin, not only in terms of its history, like what happened here, but what's happening now and how that is going to reflect on the future. Um, Really trying to get our visitors and our users to feel a lot of agency and their ability to impact the future of the state by showing a diversity of ways of knowing and interacting with the land. I'll jump in here to take us back even long before we took the state tour and in early conversations with our visitorship and with members of the community to understand 
what it is that they value about their experience here at this current museum. And there are many, many answers to that question, but one of them is that the museum transports you to different times and places, right? And so what better place to explore than our own state? And I think we've heard from many people that there are parts of the state that people here in Milwaukee will have not visited. And so this gallery gives us an opportunity to encourage people to visit different parts of the state. But it also gives an opportunity for those who are not going to be able to visit different parts of the state. So um, whether that be people who don't leave Milwaukee or it's people who are visiting Milwaukee for a couple days and aren't going to get all the way up to the Apostle Islands, this exhibit really gives us an opportunity to sort of broaden the perspective and people's horizons around what this amazing state has to offer. Those locations that you're going to recognize, so the North Woods, the Apostle Islands, I feel like that is, you know, something that's going to be a real touch, and the Wisconsin Dells too, a real touchstone for for visitors who have seen other parts of the state. Can you just speak to those uh, kind of in a broad sense, just the facts, figures about those those recognizable translations? So I can I can maybe kick us off with the Driftless area. So our Driftless area is really. It's, it's a fundamental part of the Wisconsin journey because the way that the geology of the area worked is it was the area that the glaciers never touched. So geologically, we had these, during the ice age, these vast glaciers that were covering much of Wisconsin, but the driftless area is that area that the glaciers never got to. And because of that, they have a very unique geological history, but also a very unique ecological history as well. And so in this particular experience, we're excited to bring people, for example, into a lead mine. And that sounds a little surprising, but a lot of people don't know that Wisconsin's called the Badger State, um, not because of the animal, but because of the miners that came here during the 19th century who were looking to get rich off of lead. So not gold, a gold rush, but a lead rush. And what it took to extract the lead was to literally dig into the hills into the landscape. So they were digging into these dens in order to extract the lead. And of course, lead, as, as a lot of people may not know, is the state mineral um, or galena. And it, its history doesn't even start with those lead miners. Um, it actually predates um, with indigenous peoples who've known about the leads um, and been using it for, again, for, for generations and generations. So we really want to reveal that story, bring people into that space of a cold, dark, dank lead mine and have them explore the history there. Um, another really important part of the Driftless experience is our concentration on waterways. And particularly here, we want to concentrate on Wisconsin's major rivers, the Wisconsin and the Mississippi River and talk about how these rivers have been absolutely critical to the way people were drawn to this place, gathered on this place, traded here, and of course the way that they interact with the space in terms of recreation even. So it's fishing for sustenance, but it's also fishing for recreation. It's learning about how to engineer these spaces, you know, from, from beaver dams to the dams that humans build to help control our landscapes, helping agriculture, creating hydropower, that sort of thing. And I noticed in the release, um, we, you mentioned the, the honey bear exhibit, the beloved honey bear, the beaver will be making its way as well. And I wanted to ask a follow-up in the release. It's uh, the controversial beaver. 
And I wanted to know how a beaver could be controversial. Oh my gosh, I, I can definitely talk to that. Um, <laughs> so, you know, as we've done our research and talked to different people, what we found is that this, you know, what we would call the beloved beaver, beaver is controversial because of the disruption it causes for different landscapes. So depending on, if you're talking to a farmer, they might not have a positive view on beavers because when beavers fell a tree and they build a dam, they are reorienting waterscapes. And as much as they are building ecologies, they might be disrupting agricultural lands. They might be flooding a road. They might even be flooding like private property of a garden or something like that. So some people feel that the, they can be incredibly disruptive to the landscape. Others, however, feel that beavers have a lot to teach us in terms of you know, managing water, redirecting water. I was just recently talking to somebody at the Department of Natural Resources who we've been working with who was describing to me that they're quite a controversial character, even in terms of climate change. On the one hand, they can, again, teach us a lot about water control, which, of course, water will be a big changing element as, as the planet changes. But supposedly, they, as they, they build these ecologies, those ecologies give off methane, which we know is, is an extremely important gas when it comes to our warming climate. But there's controversy about where that methane goes. Is it trapped? Is it released? So that's just a very specific and technical example of the many controversies that beavers have in terms of whether they're a pest or whether and whether they're a nuisance or whether they're actually a really profound teacher and how we can live better in our planet. Randy, do you want to talk to the prairie displays? I was just going to say I'm happy to talk to that. So one exciting thing about this prairie driftless dynamic is the driftless is evidence of water shaping the land and in a lot of ways the prairies are a reflection of how fire has shaped the land and how fire is a key part of a healthy prairie and as you walk into the space you'll be able to see sort of two big displays we'd have the prairie land bison and the hevier mammoth and they're both examples of megafauna on the land but from very different perspectives but still very local to the state so, you know, of course, we'd be able to talk about the bison and how it's uh, uh, stories about its you know, positive stories and uh, about how we interact with nature, about being able to bring the bison back to life or in this area. But we could also peel the land up in some ways, very literally, and look at the Wisconsin state history and look at how the Hebeer mammoth was found on the side of a farmland and being able to see how megafauna in the past were, you know, are still part of the landscape that we're in. So there's also a connection with time travel there. So that same Hebeer mammoth that you have been seeing, uh, you know, being hunted by the humans in the time travel scene, you're now seeing the evidence of those bones. They're strewn out, they're separated, and they're, you know, they're, you could see the tools, tool marks in the bones a little bit more clearly and get a sense of, uh, you know, what did they do after they killed the mammoth? So Apostle Islands, it's really one of those like super beautiful places in Wisconsin that as, as Katie said, like many kids, many people don't get a chance to go all the way up there and really see the beauty in that land. But it's not just beautiful. It's a place that really shows the geological history of the state, as well as ties to some of the cultural origin stories of uh, the people who live on the land. So being able to do more than just a deep dive behind the beautiful islands that we're seeing and the life that lives on them. But what are the cultural significance of, of, of those islands and the origin stories around them? It's also a great opportunity to start 
talking about migratory birds. The museum has a ton of birds, and this is a great opportunity to put those specimens on display. And this isn't just happening the Apostle Isles. You imagine that you, you know, we could start here, but then these birds would be traveling above your head and throughout the exhibit space, almost as a bit of a guide from one location to the next. For example, they'll carry you into North Woods. Yeah, and the North Woods, it, it's one of my very personal favorites, which is hard because it's like picking your children <laughs> when you're doing these exhibits. But the North Woods was another really magical place. We went on our tour, and as we talked to more people, it became very clear to us that the North Woods is actually a magical place for many, many, many Wisconsinites. It was something that always seemed to electrify people when they talk about it and electrified us when we went there. And one of the things that we we felt needed to be captured here was that the woods are so dramatically different from the day to night. The North Woods, you know, we go to sleep at night as humans, but they actually come alive. There's different, you know, ecological communities, different birds come to life. So what we're excited to do in this gallery is to actually take people through that cycle of the day so that they may enter in the afternoon, but they'll see during their visit that gallery cycle from the afternoon into evening. They hear how the landscape changes. They see how the lighting changes. The clouds turn into stars and then to cycle back through morning and back through day to get that whole 24-hour experience. But the other magical element of the North Woods is the seasonality. So you have four very distinct seasons in Wisconsin and to electrify the magic of the woods as they cycle through spring, summer, fall, and winter. And it's not just about the nature in those spaces, but it's the way that people interact with the nature of those spaces as the seasons change. So the activities that people do in the summer are, of course, very different than how they interact with wildlife in the winter. You know, there might be fishing in the summer or swimming in lakes, and in the winter it's, you know, it's ice fishing or it's snowshoeing or it's skiing. So we really wanted to bring those seasonal changes and those seasonal behaviors to life. And that that includes not only people, but of course, the wildlife. So we'll have an exhibit on hibernation. Again, we've talked about how migration changes through the seasons. And, you know, one thing I will just add, uh, you guys are radio guys. One of the things that we have taken to heart for this gallery and for the whole museum is that this isn't not just a, an experience that you look at. This is something that you listen to as well. Mm -hmm. um, something that I found very captivating on our tour was the way that the landscape's sounds change. Sort of the, the soundscape of Wisconsin is so different from place to place. And that's often lost, you know, when you go into a typical old-fashioned museum where you're just looking at stuff. We wanted to bring that multi-sensory feeling into the museum and understanding that's not just about looking, it's not even just about touching, but it's about hearing. So as you go through that, those seasons, as you go through day to night, that you're hearing how the biophony changes. And really, as you experience all of Wisconsin journey, each of those landscapes has a very, very unique soundtrack to it. The way that the prairie sounds is very different than the way that the woods sound is very different than the way the Apostle Islands sound. And we feel like that was a very important layer of the experience to, to include in the overall exhibit design. You are speaking my language. <laughs> Did you guys sort of have a conversation about what you felt like had to go, had to make the move in sort of a 
popular sense. Like, I mean, obviously some things you probably wanted to move because they're important to telling certain stories and you have them and that sort of thing. Were there some things that you guys were, or people at the museum were thinking, well, we better move this or we're never going to live that down. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? No, yeah, for, for sure. I think, honestly, we, in many instances, we, we let our gut and feedback from audiences tell us what are the things that all people, we know that, for example, the bison slash buffalo, depending on how you want to call it, that's a diorama that, that really has an impact. But we also know that it, currently, as it is displayed, it's not the most accurate depiction of those bison. But that gives us the opportunity to really think about what is the appropriate depiction, uh, but to still bring those you know, very dramatic beasts and really put them into the context that is exciting, but also teaching about the animal in a, in, in a fun and interesting way. Yeah, so there's things like the buffalo that we know are beloved, the beaver den, which gives you that sort of voyeuristic look into their den. Also, the deer, there is actually a deerscape that we understood had been turned into a very popular poster that's in a lot of supper clubs. Um, so that was something that we picked up. There's the honey bears, and you, you, you both probably know this. There's a scene where these bears are sort of foraging for honey, and there's a little baby bear who's trying to get the stinging bees away from his nose. So there's things that we fell in love with just as much as, you know, people who've been going to that museum for generations have. And so it was a mix of sort of like our instinct, but also very much listening to the visitors because, uh, you know, the MPM team has done an incredible job at reaching out to thousands, tens of thousands of visitors and getting their input. And so looking at the results of visitor surveys and getting an idea of what people have really fallen in love with and what's resonated with them has very, very much influence what we've chosen to to bring over and give new life to. But, you know, it's not a matter of just like picking something up and moving it. It's not like you can put something in a shoebox. You know, we have to very, very carefully reimagine these, I mean, their artifacts, their scenes, and give them a new life in a new building that has, you know, new opportunities and challenges. I'm just going to add in here that some of the things that are on display need to rest and so there's also a consideration of being able to, in order to preserve the items, take them off display for a period of time. And so that, that calculation is also being weighed into what will be on display in the, in the new galleries as well. So this is the second big announcement of many to come this spring. What's the biggest component of this story that nobody's talking about or that you're not being asked about? I think one thing it's uh, maybe it's been talked about a little bit, but maybe not deeply is sort of the nuts and bolts of what goes into exhibit design. And, you know, we have been working on this for a few years and still have a few years of work ahead of us because exhibit design is such a thorough and, and I, I would say complicated process. And so I think that, you know, helping the public understands why we have some answers today, but not all of the answers and why um, there's such a thoughtful approach to each component of each of the galleries and each of the exhibits within. And that whole process has been very eye-opening for me coming into this role um, and not having any background in museums before. So I, I guess that would be my answer. This is a once in a lifetime opportunity and it is an incredible privilege to, to work on this project. But the daunting part is exactly that. We have 4 million objects that we wanna shine a light on 
And it can feel very overwhelming because we work with a lot of different people, as I said before, that have very, very different talents. You know, this isn't just about a bunch of exhibit designers coming in and drawing pictures. This is working with specialists. And when I say specialists, I also mean that word, not just in terms of the curators or the scientists, but everyone is a specialist in something, (laughs) in storytelling and baking the right kind of bread and knowing when to tap a tree for, for maple syrup and fishing. And we're trying to listen to all of those voices to really create a polyvocal story. I think one thing that also I haven't been asked a lot about is about how adults will experience this museum. Often people are very concerned about children experiencing the museum. They're worried that they want their, you know, museums are for kids. Museums start to open kids' eyes. And I totally believe that. You know, I I do this job because I fell in love with museums as a child. But I also really believe that museums are a place for lifelong learning and that often adults get cut off of that because after we leave school, you're just supposed to go get a job. But museums should be a place where everybody of all ages, whether you're eight or 80, can come and find wonder and curiosity and find inspiration. And that's what we're trying very hard to do with this museum is to understand that our visitors are come from all walks of life and we want everyone who walks in to have a spark of curiosity and wonder and to feel a sense of fun and a sense of curiosity and to learn something. And sometimes those learnings can be hard. Sometimes they can be difficult truths and sometimes they can be absolutely, you know, fun and silly and wonderful and spark conversations when you go home. So I would hope that, you know, people really do see this museum as belonging to them. Well, you heard it there, Bobby. I can't wait to see the Northwoods, the Apostle Islands, as that's all translated. And I think, you know, to what they were just saying about creating an experience for all, you know, for adults and kids, I think the Northwoods is a perfect example. I mean, that's a place that I went to as a kid. I still go today and it's kind of timeless. And your experience there is totally, you know, it doesn't matter how old you are, you know? And I think that's what they're really trying to drive home is that museums are for everybody. Well, yeah, and I think it's interesting too that the reticence you hear from people about, you know, the sort of trepidation about there being a new museum and no longer being the current museum comes from adults. It doesn't come from kids, right? I mean, you know, your average eight-year-old isn't gonna be sad that that the old museum is going away because they don't have that same kind of history with it. So it really is sort of important what adults think because they're the ones who sort of have the most baggage in terms of nostalgia and and love for certain parts of the museum. Yeah, that's really well said. I mean, if you take an eight-year-old to the new museum, who knows, you know, it might be the coolest thing they've ever seen and it might change the way you as a parent view some of this change too, so. Right, but then in like, you know, 60 years, today's kids are gonna be the ones who are nostalgic about the museum, but not about the museum we're nostalgic about. They'll be nostalgic about this museum. Yeah, it's going to be really interesting to watch. And what we've been saying at the beginning of this whole thing after the first announcement is that, you know, by the end of May, we're going to know pretty clearly what this museum is going to look like because they've got all these announcements pending from now through May. So the next one's coming up April 14th. It'll be called Milwaukee Revealed. And this is the one I think a lot of folks are really anxious to learn about. This is the, uh, the future of the streets of old Milwaukee. So we're going to find out how that's going to play into the new museum space. Then on May 9th, it's Living in a Dynamic World and Mixing Zones. And this one explores an unconventional journey to five distinct ecosystems across the globe and the landscapes and cultures that occupy them. So we're going to learn more about that. And then uh, finally, on May 23rd, revealing the future of the Rainforest Exhibit and the Butterfly Vivarium. So definitely a a well-loved exhibit there, the butterflies and the rainforest. So 
you know, by the end of May, we're going to know, you know, where, where all these things are going to land in the new museum. Yeah, I think it's going to be good. You know, it won't still be 100% clear because they're still working out details of a lot of stuff. But we'll have at least in broad strokes, like you said, uh, a much clearer picture of what's going to happen. So, Bobby, we're going to be all over this story here on Urban Spelunking. So stick with us here. Make sure you're subscribed to Urban Spelunking. We're going to do updates on each one of these announcements. And uh, we've got lots of other great content coming in the meantime. In fact, next week, Bobby, we're talking about the Pabst Mansion. Yes. And there's a big change that's potentially afoot there. All right. Well, in the meantime, make sure you're subscribed and take a moment to rate and review the podcast. We'd love to hear your feedback. Love to know what you're thinking about these announcements as well. You can find us on social media or just follow us on whatever podcast platform you're using to listen right now. Make sure you go to onmilwaukee.com and check out more from Bobby's stories there. He always posts a ton of great photos and info that we don't cover in the podcast. So check out the link. We've got it in the description box of the player you're using right now as well. Podcasts here on 88.9 are produced by Kiri Salinas. And Bobby, we'll talk to you next week. Talk to you next week. Thank you.